You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm joined by one of Australia's preeminent geneticists and an emerging leader in Australian science, Professor Ian Paulson. A self-proclaimed nerd, Ian was never destined to work the foundries of his hometown in Clayton. Instead, a love of sci-fi novels and his parents' insistence on education morphed into a desire to pursue a career in science and microbiology. After a PhD studying the mechanisms of bacterial drug resistance, Ian moved to the USA and became part of a new wave of genetics research at a time when the Human Genome Project was revolutionising the field. In 2007, Ian brought his skills and research back home, setting up a lab at Macquarie University, which has since become the benchmark for Australian genetics research. Over the last decade, he has become a distinguished professor, an Australian laureate fellow, been inducted into the Australian Academy of Science, and is now the director of the new ARC Centre of Excellence in Synthetic Biology. Professor Ian Paulson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Leo. Thanks for having me here. So first up, can I ask you to give the audience a sense of the ARC Centre of Excellence and the research themes you're working on? Sure. It's the ARC Centre of Excellence in Synthetic Biology. And synthetic Biology is a very new science. Maybe it's been around for 10 or 15 years now. And it sort of tries to bring an engineering mindset to biology and introduces concepts like modularity and the standardization of parts and automation, which is not things that biologists have traditionally used. And the idea of synthetic biology is we can engineer organisms to do things that are useful in some way, either commercially useful or environmentally useful. With the Centre of Excellence, our vision is, is that we can sort of build on Australia's historical strengths in agriculture and engineer synthetic microbes that can turn agricultural waste products or byproducts into industrial biochemicals, plastic, fuels, many of the sorts of things that we currently get from crude oil, through petroleum refining, but instead we can now hopefully sustainably produce them from organic matter using our, our synthetic microbes. So we'll definitely be getting back to the centre of excellence, but I also wanted to dive into your roots a little bit. You, you grew up in working sure. class Clayton in Melbourne, and what can you tell us about the early life of Ian Paulson? Uh, I, th- I think I was, a, uh, I was a nerd from a young age. You know, I, I liked you know reading and science fiction and things like that, which made me a bit of an oddity in you know working class uh, Clayton in, in, in a little weatherboard house. And my father worked in a foundry and so on on school holidays i'd go in and you know shovel sand and you know wear gloves and pull uh, you know pour part molds from, from you know hot metal and so i think that that gave me a, a desire never to actually do that in real life um but my my parents always stressed education um i think that you know escape from our working class roots as it were but my dad always wanted me to be an accountant. I think that's because the, the smartest people he interacted with at work were accountants. And so when I became a scientist, he, he spent 20 years asking me when, when was I going to get a real job because apparently being a scientist, in, in his view, never, never counted. Well, with or without your father's blessing, science was clearly the direction you chose. Studying at Monash University in the late 80s and early 90s, 
What can you tell us about MRSA and your experiences as a PhD student? Um, sure. So I, I, my project was working on golden staff or MRSA, um, which is one of these superbugs that in hospitals have become highly multidrug resistant. So they're now resistant to most of the antibiotics that we can use. And uh, the PhD was sort of trying to work out how and why golden staff had become resistant to so many drugs cloning the genes and trying to work out the genes that actually, how, how did they make the bug resistant and where did the genes come from? How did the bugs evolve that uh, resistance and could we then come up with strategies to defeat MRSA? Uh, in terms of the experience of what it was like to be a PhD student, um, I loved it. It was always a thrill to sort of be, wow, I'm the first person to ever clone this gene, never work out how this bug did this sort of thing. And I, I guess this is something that has followed me my whole career, that there's always been this fascination that the, the microbes have developed strategies to do things and just trying to unravel how they do what they do. That's just always fascinated me. Well, you were very close to the leading edge in terms of genetics research. This was the late 80s and early 90s. It was definitely a boom time for genetics generally. What's yep. been your perception of the kind of changing approaches and technologies around this, this world? So I think the big difference over my scientific lifetime is our ability to sequence DNA and, and gain insights into the, you know, the genes and genomes of organisms. Because when I was a PhD student, it took me about 18 months to sequence one gene. Now, maybe that would have gone faster if I'd spent less time at the pub or less time playing games, but that's roughly how long it would take. And if we go forward in my career, even just 10 years beyond that point, we went from sequencing a single gene in 18 months, the sequencing the entire genome of an organism, so thousands of genes in, in a matter of weeks or, or months. And if we fast forward today, we can now sequence hundreds or thousands of human genomes in a day. So we've, got, we've gone from being able to see a tiny bit of a corner of a blueprint to here's the entire blueprint to here's thousands or tens of thousands of blueprints. And I think that's really the big change in, in, in biology in my lifetime just being able to sequence DNA and sequence at such a faster rate and so much cheaper changed our ability to sort of give us at least a blueprint or a scaffold to build our understanding on. And I think it's also revealed how much we don't know. You know, back in the, back in the 80s or 90s, I probably would have said, oh, I think we know most things about these bugs. And then once we started sequencing the genomes, I'm like, oh, my God, we know hardly anything. Well, at least those unknowns ensure that we still have plenty of interesting things to study. Um, after your PhD, you were awarded the C.J. Martin Fellowship, which included the opportunity to study internationally. What drew you to California and UC San Diego? So, in the course of my PhD, I'd been investigating these so-called multidrug resistance proteins, and when I characterised them, they all turned out to be what we call multidrug efflux pumps. So, the proteins that sit in the membrane and can pump multiple different antibiotics and antiseptics out of the cell. And by having just one protein, it can make the bug resistant to a wide range of different antibiotics. And this sort of got me interested in transporters in general. How do these bugs get things into the cell and out of the cell? And so I sort of decided that, well, that's what I wanted to study next in my career. And I came up with a, a short list of about three or four people in the world that I thought were leading researchers in that space. And I sort of wrote to them and, and the one I wound up uh, working with was uh, was Milton Sayer at, at UC San Diego. So never having left the country before, I hopped on a plane and uh, flew out to Southern California.
So with the ink still drying on his thesis, Ian packed his bags and migrated to the USA to join the labs of one of the world's foremost experts in microbiology. I asked Ian about this willingness to travel the globe in search of inspiring supervisors and the importance of mentorship in an academic career. Um, I think your mentors are crucially important to, to your career. I've maybe had the, I don't know if it's good luck or bad luck, interesting luck that I've wound up working for really quite colourful people and Milton's probably the, the most colourful I've worked with. So here I was, young and naive, never having been out of Australia, landing in San Diego airport and Milton meets me, Milton, who I'd never met, but I'd, you know, I'd exchanged emails with or whatever. At this point in his career, he's got like six or 700 papers. So I'm expecting to see, you know, a distinguished grey-haired professor. And what I find is, uh, is some guy in a, in a ratty tie-dyed T-shirt, shorts and no shoes, come up and introduce himself. Milton turns out he was at a UC Berkeley in the 60s. And I think that's coloured the rest of his life because, you know, he scavenges food out of garbage dumpsters. He, you know, cycles 20 kilometres every day to work and stops and swims in the ocean on the way, worn a pair of shoes since the 1960s. So, yeah, he was a pretty interesting figure to work for. <laughs> but, you know, definitely had a tremendous passion and drive for science. You know, he worked 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week and, uh, and, and sort of expected the same of everyone. So there was certainly a, a huge drive, intensity and drive that I got from that as well as our uh, you know, having colourful anecdotes about my crazy boss. So your time in Milton's lab at UC San Diego was not the end of the American experiment for you. After a brief stint back home completing the CJ Martin Fellowship, you ended up at the Institute for Genomics Research, or TIGER, in Maryland, and you ultimately stayed there for seven years. Can you tell us a bit about your connection with TIGER and your experience working there? That was when genome sequences start to come out. And I happened to be at the uh, American Society for Microbiology meeting in 1995 when Craig Venter from Tiger presented the first ever bacterial genome. And I was at this talk. I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. I, I, I can't believe it. You know, now that we've got the complete genome of organism, this is, this is incredible. You know, so I was just totally blown away by, by that talk. And I came back told my lab mates about how tremendously exciting this was and I started trying to get into doing, you know, things like, analog, you know, I was working on membrane transporters with Milton, so I started to try and see could I try and predict the complete content of, of, of transporters in, from, the, from these genomes and what did that tell us? Could we then use these genomes to try and clone all the different transporters out? And so this sort of got me into an interest in genomes and genomics and then when the opportunity came up to move to the Institute for Genomic Research, where genome sequencing had been invented, it was a leading genome sequencing centre of the world, and you know, we were sequencing the first genomes of, of various different organisms. This is, this is the most fantastic thing ever from my perspective. I've been like a kid in Candyland or something. Yes, it must have been a fascinating time to be in that research space. The audience might remember the Human Genome Project and Tiger during the early 2000s was definitely one of the hubs of that work. So you would have been experiencing those significant scientific strides firsthand. But you didn't stay in the US forever. In 2007, you returned to Australia and took up a professorial position at Macquarie University in Sydney. What drove the move back home? Uh, yeah, let me let me handle the two parts of that. So why did I go there? So I, there was a particular professor at Macquarie um, called Hatch Stokes, who I knew, about, I'd met him back when I was a PhD student, and we'd sort of 
interacted with occasionally over the years. And towards the end of my time at Tiger, we started a collaborative project together and did some work together. And at that point in my career, I'd been more than 10 years in the US and I sort of assumed I was probably going to spend the rest of my career in the US and then maybe retire and come back to Australia. Um, in the early days of genomics, you had to be at a genome sequencing centre, which was sort of like these factories with dozens or hundreds of expensive sequencing instruments. But there were next generation sequencing technologies that were just starting to come to market. And it was sort of democratising genomics so that it started to be you could be at any lab in the world and, and do it. And at the same time, where I was at, Tiger was going through these political ructions that eventually wound up being um, merged together with some other research centres to form the J. Craig Venter Institute. And a, a lot of the friends and colleagues that I, that I enjoyed working with at Tiger started leaving for different places. So I sort of sat down and asked myself, well, why am I still here? You know, it was the people and whatever that made it a really fun, exciting place to be. And all the people I like to work with are going, you know, no longer have to be at a sequencing centre to do genomics. And, you know, gosh, maybe I should just try moving back to Australia and see how it goes. And so it was an interesting uh, culture shock moving from a private research institute in the US to a public university in, in Australia. Probably the biggest shock for me was had to do with bureaucracy because at a private research institute in the US, walked down the corridor and spoke to my personal assistant and said, oh, I'm supposed to be at this conference next week. Can you book me a fly, tickets and a rental car and, and make it happen? And I sort of came back to Australia and suddenly found out that I had to fill out three or four different forms three months in advance before I ever had to go, could go to a conference or anything like that. So that, that was probably the biggest shock to my system. Yeah, that's a really interesting point on the cultural differences. And in a similar vein, I wanted to ask you whether you felt there's a notable difference between Australian and American institutions in terms of entrepreneurial culture and the level of interaction with industry and business? Uh, absolutely. Huge, huge difference. And and not just research institutes, but even universities and, and businesses just have a much, a much longer history and a much closer interactions than we tend to in, in Australia. And I think that comes from both sides too. And the companies in the US are very comfortable and very used to going to universities and saying, I have this problem, help me solve it sort of thing. Whereas I think there's not that same tradition of universities and, 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 and companies working hand in hand in Australia. And so that when companies have a problem, I, I think often their first thought isn't, well, let's find university specialists who, who might have some expertise in this area and see if they can help us. So I think the problems in Australia are, are, are cultural ones from both sides, from both the academic side in, in terms of the sort of metrics that are important for promotions and things like that, which is pretty much grants and, and publications and not necessarily either teaching or industry collaborations. And then from the industry side, there's maybe a lack of positive experiences in working with university researchers. And so there's not the same level of comfort from both sides in working together as there is in the U.S., and, and I think the other part of that equation, too, is I think there's a longer history in the US of students being more entrepreneurial and, and coming out of their PhD, not necessarily looking for a career path in academia, but actually being interested in spinning off startup companies and things like that. Well, again, that's probably mostly cultural when in the US is a very entrepreneurial culture that you grow up in. Starting in 2007, Ian was back in Australia, living and working in Sydney as Macquarie University's Professor of Genetics. After a few years of steady progress, his lab took a giant leap forward in 2014, 
when Professor Paulson was awarded an ARC Laureate Fellowship, one of Australia's most prestigious grants for individual researchers. The project, concerning cyanobacteria and their impact on marine ecosystems, was quite different to his other work, so I asked Ian about this project and how it helped him build towards the centre of excellence. What I've found over my career is I usually can't say no, and particularly in the days of genomics, people would come to me with, you know, I work on this interesting bug that does this, help me work out how it does it. And I've never been able to say no to an interesting sounding collaboration, which has been a tremendous career advantage in that it's greatly diversified my research interests and greatly diversified my experience. It has the problem that you do wind up spread thin across a vast array of things. But the whole marine cyanobacteria thing came out of having met a colleague and who later became my friend, Brian Pallant, who sort of got me interested in these marine cyanobacteria that actually are responsible for about a quarter of uh, global carbon fixation photosynthesis. So they're crucial players in the global carbon cycle and they were responsible for the original oxygenation of the Earth's atmosphere. And so, yeah, so my Laureate Fellowship was sort of narrowing in on those cyanobacteria to work out why they are where they are. So given your success in attracting these two very competitive grants, the Laureate Fellowship and now the Centre of Excellence, I wanted to take the opportunity to delve into your grant-seeking strategy a little. What advice do you give to young researchers looking to attract grants and research funding? Yeah, so what anyone writing a grant needs to know, and I think many people don't think about it like this, you've got to understand who's going to be reading your grant. So what's the target audience? And so depending on which grant scheme you write to, that can be quite different. So the Australian Research Council, there'll be both a panel that looks at hundreds of grants at a time, and there'll be expert reviewers who look at it. So the expert reviewers will be experts in the field, hopefully. Uh, and so they need to have a certain level of technical detail so that they're confident you know what you're doing. But the final decision is made by the panel. And on the panel, there may well be no one who's an expert in your field, or there may be one person. So You've got to write grants that are accessible. So they've got to be able to be read by people who are not experts in the field and who understand what you're doing and why it's cool and interesting. And furthermore, you've got to understand that people serving in these panels read literally hundreds of grants. And so if you don't make your grant exciting and compelling in the first half page or so, you've probably lost them. You know, if, 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 if on the first half a page of page they don't, they haven't been gripped with excitement by your proposal, it's not going to get funded because these are the people who are going to go forward before the other panel members and say, this is a really great grant because of X, Y, and Z. I think it should be funded. And so I think a common mistake that many young researchers write is they go into tremendous technical detail and that's mostly lost to a, a, a general grant panel member. But it's again, you've got to understand what you're writing grants for. Because if you're writing grants to NHMRC, for instance, they've changed in the last year or two, but traditionally my grants would go to the microbiology panel and so I could, I could write the grant knowing that it was going to be read by people who actually were microbiologists. Whereas if I was writing the same grant to the ARC, it could be being read by, you know, plant ecologists or animal, animal behaviorists or, or whatever. So you had to pitch it at a different level and make sure that even people who were far from your field still thought it was cool and interesting. Some very valuable advice there and something that's probably transferable beyond just grants. Knowing your audience and speaking at the right level is, is half the battle. I agree. So chronologically, our story is quite close to where you are today, but you're also just at the start of something which will clearly last for many years into the future. 
Can you talk us through the ARC Centre of Excellence grant and your hopes for where the centre will go? The actual experience of applying for an ARC Centre of Excellence is like nothing I've ever experienced in my career before. It is basically 18 months or two years of my life where I felt I did nothing but work on, on that application because it's a three-stage process where you put in a, an expression of interest and then about 20% of those get invited to do full proposals. And if you do a full proposal, now uh, overall centre proposal is 650 pages long, truly a monstrosity. And then the final stage, if you get past that, is then do an interview uh, before a panel in Canberra. It really is an arduous experience while at the same time you know, the Centres of Excellence brings together 19 research groups at Australian universities, 12 industry collaborators, you know, a dozen or so international universities and a handful of other organisations like CSIRO and New South Wales Department of Prior Industry. So it's sort of like herding cats to get everyone on board with the vision sort of thing. Yeah. Since we're talking about collaboration, um, and I know Centre of Excellence kind of demands this level of collaboration both nationally and internationally. What is your approach to, to making those collaborations, to herding those cats, and, and how important do you feel they are to progress in, in a complex scientific endeavour like this? Um, I've always been a big fan of collaboration because I've always believed that no one person or no one research group can do everything. And if you've got a problem and you realise you need this expertise that you don't have in your group, then the best thing to do is find the world expert or the world leader in that space and talk to them and get them involved. And in terms of how to make successful collaborations happen. It's all about interpersonal relationships. And I guess over my career, I've developed the no ass hacks rule, where if, if, if I collaborate with someone once and it's just a horrible experience, I'll never do it again. But if I collaborate with someone and we work well together and it's a fun, enjoyable and profitable experience, then you'll know, collaborate with them for decades, potentially. I, I think collaboration has been a big part of my career success. But with the centre of excellence, it's just beyond critical. From the perspective of the Australian Research Council, they could either fund 50 discovery projects or one centre. So the only way you can ever get a centre of excellence funded is by clearly demonstrating that only by bringing these people together, you can do something that you'd never be able to do with them as separate research groups. So you really have to demonstrate synergy between the different research groups in, in order to convince them to fund the centre. And then of course, once the centre has been funded, if all 19 research groups just get their little bucket of money and do their own thing, even if they do cool and interesting research, the centre will have failed in the big picture. It's only if we succeed in then you know, really building those collaborations between multiple groups within the centre that will enable us to do things that hopefully no one research group would ever be able to do by itself. The centre will have succeeded. I wanted to follow up on another thread from your answer about the Centre of Excellence grant application process and particularly how time intensive it was. Although the COE scheme is at the extreme end of the spectrum, it seems to be true more widely that grant-seeking places significant demands on researchers and that the success rates from applications are quite low. What are your feelings about the complexity of Australia's grant systems and the time that is sunk into grant writing as a task? Yeah, it's an interesting question, something I'm passionate about. So I, I always tell when I'm mentoring my students and early career researchers I've always pushed what I call the shotgun theory of grant applications. But when I when I was when I was a when I was a early early career research, the advice I got was that you should write one grant and you should hone it and polish it until it's beautiful and perfect. And 
and I guess I and the, the first ever grant I put in, I did that and it got rejected. And I'm like, yeah. and so what I believe is that any grant, if it goes to the wrong reviewer or gets the wrong spokesperson on the panel, won't get funded, even if it's superb. So I believe time is best spent putting in four or five pretty good grants than one really perfect grant. Because if you put in four or five pretty good grants, well, the chance are is that one or two or three of them will get funded. Whereas if you put in the perfect grant, you know, maybe it's a 50% chance of being funded. But you're absolutely right. The amount of research hours that is spent writing grants is huge. And, you know, historically, about 20% of grants have been funded. That's now dropped lower than that. I've served on those panels. And what I can tell you, at least half the grants that go to those panels are excellent science that should be funded. And that's in part why there's a certain element of luck, because there's an awful lot of good grants. And, they, you know, and if there was enough money, I'd say half the grants that get submitted are totally worthy of being funded. But there's only enough money to fund 20% of them, or now 10 to 15% of them. And so, yeah, there's just a really brutal culling mechanism. And, you know, a grant needs to be both really good and you need some element of luck for it to get funded at this day and age. So with a hard-fought grant process behind them, Ian and the Synthetic Biology Centre now stand ready to push into an exciting field of research with the hope of yielding new enzymes, microbes and industrial processes for the world. Before we wrapped up, I asked Ian to give us his overview of where the centre is headed and the scientific milestones they're hoping to achieve. One of the things about the Centre of Excellence is it lets you propose ambitious things which if you put into an ordinary grant would get rejected because you know a reviewer would go well that's crazy you know there's no guarantee that'll work but with the center of excellence you actually have it the longer time scale means that you can propose stuff that's almost sci-fi and so we sort of have three themes within the within this center of excellence trying to build synthetic microbes to do things that no ordinary microbe can do and so the three themes are that we're trying to build microbial communities, engineer microbes to work together to do things that no single microbe would be able to do. We're working on building synthetic organelles or repurposing existing organelles. So, for instance, the mitochondria is a sealed compartment within eukaryotic cells. It's got high concentrations of particular metabolites that would be useful precursors for making various drugs. And so we, we're looking to repurpose the mitochondria essentially as a tiny little reaction vessel inside a cell for very efficiently making drugs and pharmaceuticals and high-value compounds. And then the third theme is maybe the most sci-fi, which is where we're actually trying to engineer entirely new to nature enzymes and metabolic pathways. Can we produce bugs that can do biochemical transformations that no natural bug can do with the idea then that we'll actually be able to make fuels and industrial biochemicals that can't currently be made with natural organisms? And the broad picture is that we want to transform either waste gases or waste products or agricultural biomass into higher value products like industrial biochemicals, plastics, pharmaceuticals. And the sort of translational vision of the centre is in two areas. One is that we hope to sort of catalyse emergence of a biomanufacturing or biorefining industry in Australia, which in theory Australia should be in a good position to being a strong agricultural nation that's rich in biomass. 
But secondly, and maybe even more importantly, we hope to stimulate the emergence of synthetic biology startup companies. And this is, I think, really important for Australia's future. In the US in the last five years, there have been more than 500 synthetic biology startup companies. In Australia, there's maybe a handful at best, but there are a number of those new synthetic biology startup companies. The partners of the centre are going to help them accelerate their research. We also hope to spin new startup companies out of the centre as well. And we actually have at least one startup company that early career researchers in my group are now involved in raising funding and spinning out. Well, we definitely wish the research as well with those new ventures. Um, before we go today, I wanted to dive into a slightly more prickly issue. I'm sure I don't need to tell you that GMOs have been a point of concern for many people outside the scientific fraternity. What's your view on navigating the ethical concerns the public might have on genetic modification research? Yeah, so it's an interesting problem. And GMOs is more of a political than a, a social problem than a scientific problem. And, it, and it's an interesting problem because people are highly concerned over use of GMOs in food, but GMO crops, obviously. But on the other hand, I think it's something like 70% of the medicines that we either eat or have injected into us are produced from GMOs. So we're quite happy to use GMO products for health, but GMO products for food have been a tremendous failure. So I think it's fair to say that the Centre of Excellence is trying to sidestep this problem because the in particular industrial problems we're dealing with, we're not foreseeing any release of our organisms into the environment. What we're working on is you know, engineering organisms that would be used in contained bioreactors doing particular biochemical transformations. Having said that, there is a lot of potential positive impacts for synthetic biology for the environment in things like bioremediation, getting, you know, reducing pollutants in the environment, helping to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. There certainly are also a wide range of other environmental applications of synthetic microbes that are going to be interesting case studies moving forward of whether these organisms can be used for addressing these sort of problems. Amazing. Well, we certainly wish you luck with it. On a more personal note, you've been elected as a fellow of the Australian Academy of Science. I wanted to ask what this recognition means to you and how you feel about being somewhat of a leader and a role model to scientists in Australia. Um, okay, that's probably a, probably a little scared. No, um, I, you know, it's, it, it's a tremendous honour. Uh, I'm very excited to join the Academy and, I'm, uh, and I know it's the early days yet, so I don't really know what it all entails. But from what I've observed is the, is the Academy has the opportunity to really impact government and science policy and policy decisions in Australia. And so I'm a big fan of evidence-based decisions, whether that's in government, whether that's in industry, whether that's in your, in your daily life. Science certainly doesn't have all the answers, but uh, I think it can play valuable roles in helping formulate public policy. And, you know, and I think COVID-19 is a great example of how countries that have followed the advice of, of their medical establishments have weathered COVID-19 much better than other countries that have largely ignored or sidelined uh, their scientific advisors. Definitely. And we could probably do a whole episode on that topic, but in the interest of time, we're going to have to wish you farewell. The final wrap-up question we ask all of our guests is whether you have any book recommendations for the audience. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm a big sci-fi and fantasy nerd. I, I have one recommendation, which I'm not reading at the moment, but I would say had a, a formative influence on my scientific career, which was Trouble with Lichen. As a teenager, I read John Wyndham, who's a somewhat forgotten science fiction writer now, but probably famous for Day of the Triffids. Um, but I actually 
read Trouble with Lichen, the, the main character, and that is a microbiologist. And I won't say that book solely led me to becoming a microbiologist, but it did capture my imagination. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. You know, microbiologists sort of changed the, uh, the world in a better way. And so, you know, that, that sort of idealism is what led me into uh, science. Well, if our audience isn't already excited about microbiology, perhaps they can dust off a copy of Trouble with Lichen for inspiration. Professor Ian Paulson, thanks for being a guest on the Lab Notes podcast. Well, thanks, Leo, for having me. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography, the papers we discuss, and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.